Welcome back to Everything is Public Health, the Public Health Explained series. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So today we're going to go back to sort of wrap up the discussion on study design so that we can tie a neat little bow on it because there are so many different types of study design that I don't want to demean them and say aren't that complex to dedicate a whole episode to, but I guess that's sort of what I'm going with. <laughs> You're making a face. No, I just, you know, you could think about there are study designs with varying levels of complexity that might be easier or more complicated to explain. That's the PR way to say it, yes. <laughs> to not offend any study design. So <laughs> I don't think the actual study design will be the thing that's offended. <laughs> that's very true. We're going to run through some stuff that we sort of didn't mention, but are still nonetheless legit and big study design in a lot of fields. So we'll start with the most basic type. I hesitate to even call this a study design because there is no study. It is very frequently published in medical journals. The case report, which I'm sure everyone has at some point come across one of these. A case report is essentially an in-depth analysis of a singular, unusual, or informative example. So it might be a rare thing that folks haven't seen before, or so rare that there aren't enough people that it's happening to to be able to look at. And so you might, as you said, MJ, see this in medicine. Sometimes experiments are, are unethical or sort of you can't get approval for them or can't enroll folks. And so sometimes you wait for things to happen and then you can write about it. And that's this sort of singular case report model. Yeah. Even though there's no study and even though it's strictly observational, it is still important, especially in medicine. If you want to study a complication of a particular surgical procedure, you can't cause that complication on purpose just to know what happens, right? That would be highly unethical. Although I'm sure a century ago, is pro- they probably do this all the time. <laughs> I was just laughing because we have definitely done <laughs> this. Definitely not done we, not us, but, but people have definitely intentionally caused things or intentionally left things untreated yeah. to see what would happen. Tuskegee, just say. Thankfully, we are in a better place. It's not perfect, but we are better. And so we now rely on these case reports. Yes. Can you think of, I can only think of medical examples. Can you think of a public health one? Sure, there are. It's not in the context of an individual, right. but there might be a case report on an event, for example. Right. Like you might do a case report on the public health response to a flood or a public health oh, response right. to some other kind of natural disaster, trying to see like where were their failures, where were their missed opportunities, how can we learn from this singular event to improve our responses moving forward. But I don't know of too many public health examples, actually can't think of any public health examples that are specific to an individual the way a medical case report is. Yeah, I'm sure lots of reports were written about Flint when it happened. So kind of the same, but also not as individual as a medical case report. I think the other thing, when we're talking about this in the public health context, usually we refer to a case study as opposed to a case report. Oh, that's true. Different semantics because we're looking at different things. So that makes sense. So one step better than a case report is a case series, which is basically a collection of case report about a particular exposure that you're interested in analyzed together rather than in isolation. And this happens because, again, for all the same reason why a case report happens, like this is either a super rare event or this is a super unethical event for you to cause it intentionally. So they would have to wait for it to happen. But, and I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, I believe for a case series, it's not just a collection of individual case report. You need to go out to find a series of these cases first and then write about them. 
rather than 10 of these appeared in the last five years and then we just collected them together? So that's a good question. So I think I've seen them done in a couple of ways where there have been individual case reports written over a span of time and then one person pulls all of those case reports together, analyzes similarities and differences and summarizes it in a case series. And I've also seen where a handful of cases or if several cases have occurred in a certain time period and no case report has been written. So then an individual writes a case series on those cases that have occurred. Okay, good to know that both are valid because I would imagine if you are looking retrospectively on published case reports, that fundamentally is different than collecting a bunch of cases and writing them all together. Well, you're not necessarily restricted to looking at the published case report that you use the case report to identify prior cases and then you go in depth into the Uh, medical records, sort of doing a retrospective analysis to assess are there other things that you want to pull out that maybe three or four of the cases had an element that wasn't identified in the original case report. So you go back to the medical record and you can see, did they have this also? Like maybe you can identify some weird exposure that you hadn't thought of before. Yes, And that is a very good point. And like I said, these are way more common in the medical field because oftentimes you want to study a very rare disease or a very rare complication, but they can really be used in any other area. We just see them more often in the medical setting. Okay, now those are out of the way. We can move on to the bigger study designs that we didn't really cover. Okay, do you remember this one documentary called 63 Up? Nope. So it was really big like a few decades ago, but I'm sure you heard of the concept, which is they followed a group of kids for and they interviewed them every seven years or something. Have you heard of this at all? The documentary? No, I've heard of cohort studies where they've followed folks over time and interviewed kids and family members and different folks. Yeah, so it's kind of like that. It was this documentary, a documentarian, if you will, but he's a filmmaker and he started, I believe, in the 60s or 70s where they took a bunch of kids and they decided that this is going to be like a lifelong project of his and he's going to interview these kids every seven years or so at some set yearly interval and and he made a i believe award-winning documentary about it because as you can imagine it's probably very interesting to follow someone over time throughout their entire life and that is the segue to a longitudinal study i'm taking extra time to pronounce this word because just before recording listeners um i said it wrong and Cass sort of dinged me about it. So this is what a longitudinal study is. Longitudinal. Yes, longitudinal. So it doesn't have to be a cohort, which is your example with a documentary where you've identified a group and you follow them over time, although that is one type of longitudinal study. Otherwise, we can look at issues before and after, some change. Really, longitudinal comes down to you're not looking at one point in time and comparing it to another point in time, or you're not just looking looking at one point in time, you're looking at multiple time points to see how things are changing. And the time point is relative to whatever you're studying. So some exposure with a really fast outcome, the longitudinal study may be defined as two or three years. Whereas if you have a outcome that takes decades to develop, then that time frame is obviously going to be longer. In regards to the documentary, it's not a longitudinal study because there are obviously differences. The sample in a typical longitudinal study is typically bigger because I think they follow like 12 kids or something. A documentary is a documentary. It's not really a study. Um, the intervals are probably shorter if you're doing a longitudinal study, but again, depends on what outcome you're interested in. Uh, the time frame is probably shorter just because of funding issues. Like you're not going to be able to, or maybe you, I'm sure there are studies in the past where they follow for 
like an extensive period of time, but typically. So it really depends. You're super focused on the idea of a cohort with a longitudinal study. What I do predominantly is secondary data analysis in the form of a longitudinal study. So looking at administrative records, publicly available data, death certificate data, crime stats, etc., and we start all the way back in the 80s and we're assessing baseline trends, a law changes, and then we're assessing the changes in the trends moving forward. It's also a longitudinal study. It might take us a few months or a year to conduct, but we have a 40-year study period. Yes. Perfect segue. You just mentioned it could be retrospective or prospective. The difference you just described, right? You're going back in time to look at things going forward in time, which makes it retrospective because you're standing in a particular point in time. Or you could be prospective, which is you start today and then you go forward. And obviously, like any study design, the outcome needs to be defined ahead of time. I think we talked about this a few episodes, maybe in the RCT episode. You can't just like start and be like, ah, we'll just we'll just see whatever happens. You have to define outcomes. Otherwise, you can say anything you want, really, if you don't define them. Cool. All right. Some strength of the longitudinal study. So some of the strengths of longitudinal studies include looking at longer time periods. So you can often look at baseline trends. So if you're looking at before and after longitudinal study, you can assess what's happening before a change and then see what's happening after. If you are doing a cohort study, for example, and you're looking at how folks are developing or aging or whatever throughout the time period, you can sort of see how things are changing over a longer period. Another strength of longitudinal studies is it's easier to assess causation. So if you're just looking at one snapshot in time, you don't know whether your exposure preceded your outcome or not. But in a longitudinal study, in a variety of different types of study designs that fall within the longitudinal bucket, you generally know what the exposures are before, right? Either you've identified a cohort and you're following them through time and you can see what develops, or you know that there were some policy changes and you're looking at outcomes before and after. And while it's not a randomized control trial, and so it's not the quote unquote gold standard, and you're able to sort of more prove causation, If you were looking at change over time and you have an intervention group and a comparison group, you can make a stronger causal argument. Yes, but there are obviously a lot of weaknesses. Depends on the type of longitudinal study. Depends on the type. I keep you're obsessed with cohort studies. I'm stuck in the cohort because that's like the the archetype when you say longitudinal study. Not in my field. We don't Ah, do. I've never done a cohort study (laughs) in twelve years of research. And do you know why, listeners? Because they're often very expensive and very long. Well, and the outcomes that I am studying are really rare. Right. Like you know, we have way too many people dying of gun-related injuries, but thankfully, it's still rare. Yeah, of course. So if if you're doing a sort of cohort style, which MJ is super in love with right now, um, they can be very expensive. The follow-up, the staff time, the incentives to keep people engaged, and they may take a long time for your results or your outcomes to develop. You might lose people over time. But then as we've talked about the type of research that I do that's also longitudinal, if you're using secondary data, that can be great. You're less likely maybe to have losing people, right? Because you're not sort of enrolling people and following them over time but you are beholden to the quality of the data that's collected. Yes. So if there's missingness inherent in the data, we have zero control over that. 
or if some states decide to just stop reporting their data for a certain amount of time. Do you want to call out those states? <laughs> no. Um, there can be bias, Florida. Um, in uh, of course, <laughs> what data is there, and what you can, what questions you can answer. So there, there are weaknesses regardless of the type of longitudinal study, but it is a stronger study design or sort of study style, maybe is a better way to think of it than just looking at a sort of point in time cross-section. Yes, which perfect segue to the next study design that we're going to talk about. Before we move on to that, though, there's one point that I want to emphasize, which is if your time frame is really long, like over the spans of like years or perhaps decades, the world also changes over that time, right? So you need to take that into consideration, especially for, for example, if what you're doing is over a span of 40 years, you have to take into consideration that the world is not the same in the 70s than it is in today. So you can't really remove that aspect of the longitudinal study, you just need to take that into consideration. Right. So you might control for changes in other outcomes or trends. You might look at sort of fixed effects, meaning that there are things that we think are inherent to a state, for example, that might not change, but there might be time trends, for example, uh, changes to the economy and other things that you would want to try to measure. So you can try to model some of that, but you can't totally account for it, as you said. Yeah. Perfect segue. Your previous comment, perfect segue to the next one. By the way, there's a strong sunlight beam I know. coming from Cass's window. So she looks like she's an angel that's descended from heaven I'm, right I'm, now. Just I'm for, for absolutely a few minutes. Not. Is it bothering you? I can move the thing. No, 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 oh, no. It's, it's, not, it's on that. It's not even that side. So you, you mentioned this. The other, I don't want to say the other option, like it's the only other option. Another, another, another right, design is the cross-sectional study, which you sort of already mentioned, is a snapshot in a single point in time. Right. And so one of the considerations is contrary to a longitudinal design where you can look at changes over time and assess whether your exposure preceded the change in your outcome, your intervention, or preceded the change in your outcome, whether it's an exposure or an intervention. Very important. In a cross-section, all you know is whether there's an association. Is one thing associated with another? So, for example, if you wanted to look at the relationship between presence of parks and physical fitness, and all you had was a cross-sectional study, you could say, sure, there is an association between the number of parks and reported physical activity. But you don't know, are people more physically active because the parks are here? Or did people who tended to be more physically active move into the area because of the parks, right? It sort of facilitated them engaging in their activity. In contrast, if we were going to do this longitudinally, we might follow a group of folks and we might measure their physical activity and then we might introduce a park and see how people's physical activity changes with the presence of a park. That would give you more of a causal argument that the park led to increases in activity as opposed to just there is an association, but we don't know which caused what. Yeah, so it sounds like it is not as good of a study design. So why do people do it? So often we don't know if there's anything there. Um, and studies can be expensive and time consuming, all the things that we've talked about. And so often researchers will say, are th these things associated or not? If the answer is yes, then you can develop a more formal hypothesis, more formal study design, and you can test to try to capture these causal relationships. If there's nothing there, maybe there's nothing there. Maybe you aren't looking at the right variables or maybe you're not asking the right questions. So just because there's nothing in a cross-sectional study doesn't mean that you totally go to a different topic, but it means that you need to 
think more critically about the questions that you're asking. But it's a good it's a good basis. It's a good starting place. It is. It is a totally valid observational study, but it is a very valid study design. It can also be good for hypothesis generating. So if you have sort of a set of measures and if there's something new that's emerging, you can do a cross-sectional study again to see like what is happening? What are what it's driving this change, right? Yeah. And I recently discovered uh, via my uh, job is that a lot of times you need a study to justify another study. Oh, 100%. So, so often cross-sectional studies will be a pilot study. Yes. <laughs> and then the data from that pilot study is what you use to get the larger federal funding. Yeah. The game of writing grants. Oftentimes <laughs> you have to play these sneaky little games. I don't think it's fair to frame it as sneaky. I think it's it should be framed as folks are interested in answering a question in order to get research funds to answer the larger question. We sometimes have to say there is an association. Yes. So you should fund us to answer these larger questions and you do that with a pilot study sneaky is not the word that i would use no that was a poor word choice uh from my part throwing shade at the hopkins researchers <laughs> no 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 mudslinging because no, no, no. i i didn't know about this like i wasn't a part of academia at all until like this past year so yeah writing grant is a very interesting process is what i will say um many different steps to jump through and a lot of different consideration so one last thing before we uh end this episode is that a cross-sectional study, um, you some of you might heard of this, could be used to mimic time progression if done in a certain way, if you do a series of them. So for example, let's say you want to see, do people's dietary habits change over time? A longitudinal approach would be you follow a cohort of people and you see if their dietary habits change over a series of time. But maybe let's say you can't do that. So another option is you do a cross-sectional study on different age group. You do it on people in their teens, people in their 20s, people in their 30s. And you could, mimic is maybe too strong of a word, but you could sort of model a progression in time to see if people's dietary habit changes with age with a series of cross-sections. And some people have done that uh, in lieu of a longitudinal study for many reasons, a lot of them practical. But yeah, like it's some may call this the poor man's longitudinal study, but it's fundamentally different since you're looking at different cohorts. There's no guarantee that each successive cohort you examine actually re- reflect the condition that you, of your initial sample. Right. And I think a, a key thing in a longitudinal study is you should be looking at the same units, whether it's people or or states or whatever it is. So if you're doing that sort of cohort cross-section that you were just describing, you're not looking at the same people. So it's you're still not getting that causal argument. Sometimes when we're looking at policy change, we will also do cross-sections. So we will pool together cross-sections because we don't have monthly counts of things or even daily counts of things. We're looking at the year total, for example, of a particular outcome, So technically, we are doing a longitudinal study using pooled cross-sections. It's the same unit, but we're just looking at one-year snapshots each year. Yeah, it could get very detailed and complicated uh, the more we dive into each of these study designs. But we sort of wanted to mention these because it would feel bad to leave them out. It It would feel bad to leave them out. And I think public health has real challenges in answering some of its questions because we don't often have the same resources that are available for some of the money, uh, some of the money, some of the money, some of the <laughs> yeah. federally funded studies that where you can enroll these large cohorts or you can do randomized control trials, right? We often don't get to randomize folks either because policymakers 
don't want to be randomized into a policy or not, or it's not ethical to expose people to certain things. Although we continue to expose them because we have not successfully addressed our public health critical infrastructure, but that's a separate issue. Hot take. (laughs) Hot take. But we have these other strategies longitudinal studies, quasi-experimental designs, even cross-sectional studies that can help us to understand the relationship between an intervention or an exposure and an outcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health, our Public Health Explained series. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help the show immensely. Send us questions or comments or new topics you want us to explain to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. This episode is brought to you by Slow Fashion. Clothing and the fashion industry is one of the most common pollutants in the world. So reject fast fashion and try to buy clothes that you will actually wear. I've never heard of slow or fast fashion. Learning something new today. It's fantastic. For now, you can follow us on Twitter at EverythingIsPH or Instagram at EverythingIsPublicHealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. But keep an eye out. We might be transitioning to Mastodon or some other uh, platforms, depending on how things go in the Twitter sphere. Listeners, please visit our website, which is our Patreon page for all major updates and bonus material. We are 100% patron supported in that we do this not for the big paychecks from sponsors, but for the love of public health and listeners like you. If you want to support the show directly, you can support us on our Patreon page. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. 